You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here in the house, back in my bunker outside of D.C., thankfully for my trip earlier this week. And folks, nobody's home. Nobody is home in Washington. They actually went on vacation Wednesday afternoon this week. They left on Wednesday instead of Thursday. Their work is done. It's April, but you know, it's starting to feel feel a lot like Christmas. It's like November, December because they have nothing left to do. Meanwhile, we have a constitutional crisis nobody wants to talk about. Many of you heard me on Levin last night, um, following up on my podcast, my article about the gravity of what Neil Gorsuch did. And how this wasn't just some void for vagueness doctrine inside legal analysis, but rather an entire concoction of constitutional rights for due process plus BS added on due process against deportation for foreign nationals and the consequences of it. And the more I think about it, this is even worse than I made it out to be, and I'm going to have a follow-up article out on that. But I just wanted to frame this in a broader context of the article I put out today, and I'll link to it in show notes about the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal saying that the state of Ohio must give $1.5 million of taxpayer funding to Planned Parenthood. These things happen in the courts every day, and Congress does nothing about it. I can't even get the conservatives to talk about it. And meanwhile, we have pretty much to a person every outside conservative thumb-sucking pundit from National Review on down saying how, hey – um, that uh, that uh, substance on your legs, it's not pee. It's, uh, it's water. Don't worry. It's actually a good thing that we're being screwed over by the courts. It, it, it shocks me that we have this fight over Comey, over Mueller, over elections, which we're going to have in November. It's all meaningless. Our movement is like a harmony without a melody and icing without a cake. There's no, there's no there there. It doesn't matter. If we're going to allow the federal courts to falsely grant standing to non-cases and controversies on broadly political issues and actually mandate executive action, imagine a court becoming an appropriator, not just putting a negative on a positive of an executive, but placing a positive on the executive's negative, you must give you the state legislature, you must do this. Hey, you, Congress... You cannot have an immigration statute. Unconstitutional. You know, let me tell you something. And by the way, we have a candidate today. Today is going to be our seventh in a series of Meet the Candidates. We're going to speak with Shaq Hill, who is challenging Barbara Comstock in Virginia 10. We have him waiting on the line, but I want to finish up because you know I just I might not get to this until next week, and I want you guys to hear this. In the sixth debate between Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. Lincoln was responding to an assertion that Douglas made earlier. Douglas made basically this declaration that is the basis of modern-day judicial supremacy, that whatever the Supreme Court says is the law of the land, meaning if they, if they issue 
a ruling on a case or controversy, no matter how legitimate the ruling is, no matter how divorced is from the Constitution, no matter how, no matter whether that person should have had a proper standing, or even if he did, to apply it everywhere else, it's binding on every case, everywhere, on every state legislature, on every member of Congress, and the president. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it unless you amend the Constitution. That, that, that's what we are told, and that is a tyranny that our founders could never have imagined. It's worse than King George. So, Abraham Lincoln said a very interesting thing. Now, we've said this before that, you know, obviously it has to be a legitimate case of controversy. Obviously, they can't mandate a positive on the executive branch. You must issue funding. You must um, issue a driver's license to illegals. You must issue a marriage license to something that's not a marriage. You must issue a visa to someone from Somalia. A court cannot do that, and there's a reason the founders didn't give them the police powers. But Abraham Lincoln said a very interesting point here, and and we, we, we have this in our – and I'm forgetting which podcast it was, but you could look it up on iTunes, the one where we talk about the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy. Abraham Lincoln explained like this. We do not propose that when any other one or a thousand people shall be decided by the court to be slaves, we will in any violent way disturb the rights of property thus settled, meaning back then they viewed them as property. But here's the kicker. But we nevertheless do oppose that decision as a political rule, which shall be binding on the voter to vote for nobody who thinks it wrong, which shall be binding on the members of Congress or the president to favor no measure that does not actually concur with the principles of that decision. So, to be clear, it's not just that Congress has Article 3, Section 2 powers over the Supreme Court's uh, appellate jurisdiction, and certainly over every single aspect of the jurisdiction uh, and orientation of the lower courts. That That's a separate thing. But even before they stripped jurisdiction, they have the judicial power to determine the outcome of a specific case. What they can't do is issue a broad ruling um, – this statute is unconstitutional. It's it's a it's it's unconstitutionally vague. Uh, no, you could just render an opinion in that case. And this is what bothers me about Neil Gorsuch. It's not just that he's a horrible, horrible philosophy on immigration jurisprudence. It's that as it relates to the role of the judiciary, first of all, his tone and oral arguments and the opinion make it very clear that he believes that the courts are the starting point and ending point for political issues. Very disturbing. But in this particular case, the guy was convicted twice of burglary. There was no ambiguity at any point that that would be a deportable offense. There was no problem of unfair notice, even if you believe an immigrant is entitled to that in an immigration case, which he's not. But that's the point. There's one thing, let's say it was a DUI or something, and the executive branch applied it as part of the residual clause of a violent, uh, a violent crime, a crime of violence, and, we, and, and the court said, nah, I don't think that's what statute means. But to say that the statute is a problem and use a case that's not applicable to your principle – as a platform to make that political decision is exactly what we railed against, yet we have the entire conservative movement telling us this is beautiful. And no one in Congress is speaking out against this, the Ohio case or anything. So we're going to keep up on the courts um, and, and all of this. But the bottom line is, at some point, 
at some point, we have to look in the mirror. You can only have a Republican Party and a broken Congress if there's a conservative movement that's okay with it. Yeah, they complain about it, but then do nothing. We keep reelecting the same people and falling for the same platitudes. So I promised on this show that I would offer this growing show. And by the way, we're, we're rocketing up to the top 100 podcasts on the charts. Thanks to Mark Levin's show, my appearance on Fox Sunday night, the full hour. I've gotten a lot of good feedback. Keep sending me your emails, your ideas. Um, for citizens' task forces, grassroots policy making, a lot of things we discussed last week. But I, I said I would offer this platform to those that are willing to challenge the system, challenge people in primaries, even though this year I wasn't going to take the time because it is needed to take the time to really get to know people beforehand and issue endorsements. Nonetheless, I will bring them on even before I actually meet with them. And let you guys decide whether you feel the guy's BSing you or the guy's for real. The guy will really change the game. So we've had started this series of Meet the Candidates. We brought on six candidates until now, House and Senate. Unfortunately, not enough from the Senate. Today's candidate is Shaq Hill. He is challenging Barbara Comstock, who is a relatively new member of the House from Northern Virginia, Loudoun County area. Uh, this is District 10. Now, Shaq graduated from the United States Air Force Academy. He served in Desert Storm. He later became an instructor at the Air Force Academy. After serving nine years in the Air Force, he started his own financial planning business. He's also the father of 46 foster children over over the past decade or so. We're going to have to find out about that. But anyway, he's challenging Barbara Comstock in a primary. This is a critical district to holding the House of Representatives as well. And again, she is very much the embodiment of someone who campaigns on one agenda and then is lockstop with, with leadership, which is lockstop with the Democrats. So I figured I'd bring him on today and, and see if we could get someone from the outside who's willing to run to speak to these issues. Hey, Shaq, are you on the line? Daniel, good afternoon. I'm glad to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Shaq. First of all, before we start, what is up with the – am I reading that right on your bio, 46 foster children in your home? You know, my wife and I uh, wanted a large family, Daniel, and and through uh, the course of a cancer that she had, and I'd like to get more into that maybe later, but we were unable to have more children naturally. So we have two children of our own naturally, and then we became foster parents. So in 1997, over the next 13 years, we would uh, foster one child at a time or a sibling group of two or three, and we would then have come in and through our home 46 children that were, uh, that were in a situation that needed to have care. We did what we could to help them, to provide them hugs and kisses, and for, um, and I, I said 13 years, but for 16 years, we had a, a crib in our master bedroom. And what we ended up doing is we ended up adopting a sibling group of three brothers and a sister because, you know, the federal government cannot solve the local problems. It's up to the people to do what they can do when they can do it. And my wife and I have a, a, a large heart. We have a large ability to give to others. And 
And these children needed a home. And yes, 46 kids would come in and out of our home over those 16 years. And we were pleased to help them get a better start. We were pleased to help their parents get their act together so they could become producing members of our society. And we're pleased now to be running for the United States Congress so that we can clean up the swamp and get our country back on its footing. So, yeah, wow. I mean, that, that that's an amazing story. I got three boys of my own, and it feels like I have 46 kids some days with, with just three <laughs> boys, so I could only, only imagine. So let, let's jump right into it. Um, you know, a lot of people in Washington will say, look, you know, this is going to be a very tight fight for Congress for control of the House. Uh, Virginia 10 is among the top, literally the top five targets probably of uh, House Democrats that will determine control of the entire House. You know, come on, Barbara's great. She's uh, she's held the district even when Hillary carried it last time. She's a good fit for the district. Why are you upsetting the apple cart and, uh, and risking control of, of this district? Well, she's a bad fit for the district. Many people say she's the best we can do, and I certainly tell everybody she's the worst we can do. You know, when she first came on the scene in 2014, we had a 34-year incumbent that was retiring. She appeared on the Mark Levin show, and she promised she was going to be a conservative, a Reaganite. She promised us she was going to be fiscally sound. She promised us that she was going to bring back the very ideals of our founders, individual liberty, individual property rights, and right out the gate, Daniel, she ended up jumping headfirst into the swamp where she then immediately started violating her own promises. In 2015, she would vote for the Cromnibus bill that broke all of the Republican spending caps, that broke every single issue that she ran on as a Reaganite conservative, and even Mark Levin would excoriate her on his radio talk show. And this is particularly of interest because Mark lives in the 10th Congressional District. So what I did is I brought that... Um, podcast down from Mark. I clipped it. I now have that on a thumb drive where I keep it in an underground bunker in a nondescript location, and we're going to use it against her because she's violated her promises. She's not even close to being a Republican, and we can beat her and hold the seat for Republicans in the 10th District. So I, I guess the first thing that a lot of my audience would be interested in is that We've had many candidates try to challenge incumbents over the last few cycles, and you know I was personally involved when I did PAC work. I've recruited candidates. I recruited against Mitch McConnell and Thad Cochran. Was involved with mm-hmm. Dave Brad, and which is mm-hmm. in your home state. And unfortunately, I would say there's probably a one percent success rate. Last cycle. I believe there was not a single House member, much less Senate member, to be defeated from the right. Unfortunately, one was defeated from the left. Tim Hulskamp, a buddy of mine, went down because of these lying ads of of that the the egg K Street guys and and now that guy, Roger Marshall from Kansas, is now pro-amnesty, and that's a different story, and he certainly didn't run on that. But certainly, we did not defeat anyone from the right in a primary. Um, they usually have trouble raising money because it's very hard to challenge the system, can't muster a campaign large enough to obtain name ID. Why do you feel you're different and that you have a good shot at, at you know, before we get to the general election, winning this primary? 
Well, we have a fantastic shot of winning, and it's not so much because I'm as good as I'd like to think I am. It's really because Barbara's as bad as she is. And because of our location, we're in the greater metroplex of Washington, D.C. We have the radio station that broadcasts there and also broadcasts in our congressional district. And the people, the grassroots people, Daniel, are aware of Barbara's voting record. They are aware that she promised to repeal Obamacare, but in 2017, when the vote came up, she voted not to repeal Obamacare. That single vote has alienated about a third of the district. She also voted to force our taxpayer dollars to pay for transgender surgeries in the United States military, which is a complete abomination and the misuse of our of our precious taxpayer dollars that are designed to be for the defense of our country. And again, this district has a lot of military, those that are connected to the military and veterans, and she's alienated them. And the last I mentioned just a second ago, the omnibus bill in 2015 and then again in 2018. She's more concerned about continuing to fund Planned Parenthood, to continue to fund the guts of Obamacare. She's even concerned about about uh, exploding the debt, breaking all of the ceiling caps, and she's not concerned about the people. And everywhere I go in the district, I have just rank and file everyday Americans. I had a soccer mom come up to me last night. She said, look, I'm not a political person, but I know just how bad Barbara is. So our campaign has done very well. And let me give you one statistic that you can hold on to. We now are approaching 1,200 individual donors into our campaign. To put that in perspective, there is no Republican, either an incumbent or a challenger in the Commonwealth of Virginia that has more individual donors than I do and not even Barbara herself. And there's only one Democrat who's up for election this cycle that has more individual donors than I do. And he's a senator named Tim Kaine. So we have broad support across the spectrum of Republicans, but really more constitutional conservatives that are concerned about the direction of our country. That's why I've been endorsed by Dr. Sebastian Gorka, by Brent Bozell, and even by Dr. Ron Paul. Each one of those gentlemen kind of represents a different sure. faction of the Republican Party, but they're coalescing around my campaign, and we're doing extremely well. And the people are waking up. They're understanding what's going on because of podcasts like yours. They're looking at the conservative review. They're listening to Mark Levin and Laura Ingram, and they're recognizing that rhinos like Barbara Comstock are hurting us and they need to be repealed and replaced. And that's why I'm running. Sure. So, I mean, I obviously have a very strong indictment of Barbara Comstock, and I think everyone in this audience would, would recognize she's very close with leadership. I, I'm assuming I don't need to ask you this, but I'm going to ask anyway, if Jim Jordan does challenge um, McCarthy for the speakership or for minority leader status if they lose, I'm assuming you're a vote with Jordan. Uh, without without a doubt. Um, one of the things I'm going to do, Daniel, is I'm going to be joining the House Freedom Caucus. I've got great respect for Congressman Jim Jordan. I think his website is jordanforspeaker.com. I uh, can't promise you that, but it's something close to it. 
And not only am I going to be a strong member of the House Freedom Caucus, I'm going to join Dave Brat, like you said, who, against all odds, beat Eric Cantor. And, and uh, Congresswoman Barbara Comstock is Eric Cantor. It's actually she interesting has, you bring up Eric, um, Dave Brat because – you know, they're both from Virginia, but if you had to juxtapose two members who went in different directions, Dave Brad has never disappointed me once. Um, really lived up to his campaign promise. If you remember that Virginia creed, the Republican Virginia creed, and uh, Comstock obviously went another way. Well, this is one of the things that she's violated. We have a very strong Republican Party creed here in Virginia, and it does talk about fiscal responsibility, budgetary restraints. It talks about the role of the federal government. It talks about a strong national defense. It it even talks about the free enterprise system and even faith in God. I mean, it's fantastic when we actually put down a blueprint and we try to define what the Republican Party is. But, But Barbara has ruined the brand. I mean, I heard you speaking earlier about, you know, what does the Republican Party stand for anymore? And if you ask that of Barbara Comstock and those that support her, there's really nothing that they can say that they stand for. I mean, they stand for the swamp. They stand for the money that's coming into the district. And by the way, 80 percent of the money that she's raising to spend against me in the primary is coming from outside of the district and from directly the swamp. And I mean, I have to tell you, I was the first statewide personality that endorsed Dave Bratt for Congress. By the way, I, I remind him of that every now and again. And, uh, and he is a shining beacon of exactly what it means to stand for principle, to stand for the free market, to be an authentic principle conservative leader in the Congress. And I'm going to be one of the reinforcements that supports him and hopefully Speaker Jim Jordan. Sure. Um, you know, you, you hinted to this in, in your statement before, and I, I'm getting a lot of these questions from people when it comes to certain political districts. Like Virginia 10, you take a look at it on the map. You know, it starts off in the West, pretty rural area, conservative, I 81 area mm-hmm. near Winchester, go over to Berryville, mm-hmm. um, Purcellville. Obviously, you got Loudoun County there. Then mm-hmm. it starts veering east, and there's a big population inside the district that gets very close to the Fairfax area, literally the Mm -hmm. geographical location of the swamp. What would you Mm -hmm. say to those that say, look, you know, all right, so you win the primary, but my gosh, how do you run on a message of limited government, literally limiting the size of the swamp, which is encompassed in the eastern part of that district with so many government workers when, for example, in the omnibus, many of these bureaucracies were increased by 15 to 20 percent, Department of Education, Mm -hmm. HUD, and you're running to shrink it. How do you gain resonance in the eyes of, you know, both kind of sides of this district on, on a limited government platform? Well, when you look at the district, you're right. It starts in the West Virginia side on the west, and then it comes all the way in towards Fairfax. But it was specifically gerrymandered. And I say that word not necessarily pejorative, because it, but it's descriptive. It was gerrymandered by the former congressman to keep him in the 10th congressional district in favor of the 11th congressional district, which is still just a little bit more east and a fellow named Jerry Conley. 
but it's been gerrymandered to the point where it only keeps in the Republican areas of the northern part of Fairfax County. It loops around and it captures another Republican area that we call the Sully Magisterial District. It does not have Fairfax City. It does not have Arlington or Falls Church. It only has about 1% of the district is inside of the Beltway itself. So when you, when you compare the district, you have to look at how the district is voted. And real quickly, in 2012, Mitt Romney lost the state of Virginia, but he won the 10th Congressional District. In 2013, Ken Cuccinelli, a conservative running for governor, lost the state by two percentage points, but he won the 10th Congressional District. In 2014, our Republican nominee, Ed Gillespie, lost to the the United States Senate, uh, Mark Warner, by 17,000 votes on 2 million cast, but Ed Gillespie won the 10th Congressional District. And lastly, 2016, Donald Trump, who lost the state of Virginia, had more votes than 2017 Democrat Ralph Northam, who won the governorship in the 10th Congressional District. The 10th Congressional District is routinely votes Republican, It only carried Hillary by 52% in the 2016 election. But to your point on the government workers, I'm not necessarily for amputation, but I'm definitely for attrition. And we need to make sure that our fighting forces are strong. We need to make sure that necessary elements of the federal government are strong. And many of those government workers feared that President Trump was going to come in and they were just going to, he was going to destroy all the China in the China shop. And they were literally voting their economic kitchen table and their concern for their own jobs. This is not the case now. They're not concerned about their jobs. They're more concerned about America and they're more concerned about getting back on the footing. And this is why the core of the 10th Congressional District is about 41% Republican and is only 27% Democrat. So in off presidential year elections, the 10th Congressional District is really an R plus district. And if we have somebody who's gonna run on principled, conservative, constitutional values, then that person will beat the liberal that's going to be nominated on the Democrat side. So let's get get into some of those values. Obviously, I opened up the show with something very fundamental, the entire role of the legislature, not just specific issues, but the entire role of what is a legislature and what is the judiciary. Um, Obviously, much of our base is now seeing that even the few good things that Republican legislatures try to do and I say few, there really are very few things, but once in a while, they'll, they'll defund Planned Parenthood. You got the 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi. Every last thing gets placed in the courts instantaneously. They shop around to any lower court they want. They get a nationwide injunction on a lot of Trump's policies. They're mandating that he continue Obama's regulatory policies. Obviously, the executive amnesty, um, there were uh, 65,000 illegal amnesty applications submitted since that court decision. Um, We literally have judges as kings, and I'm not finding a voice um, in Congress to even speak to this. What will you do about the problem of judicial supremacy if you are elected by the voters of Virginia 10? 
Sure. When you look at the Constitution, when you look at the Constitution, Article One is the largest of the articles because our founders knew that the power belonged to the people that, and it belonged to the legislative branch. The Article Two is the executive branch. It's smaller than Article One. Article Three is the judiciary, which is even the smallest still. And our founders, under the Constitution, require us to have a Supreme Court justice and a candle and a desk. That's what's required under Article 3. So I think the solution is what Dave Bratt's actually talking about as well, and that is using the power of the Congress and its ability to redistrict the several districts that we have to take a look at the judges that are making these rulings and use the power of the purse and also the power of redistricting to really clamp down and say to these activist judges, you're not following the Constitution. You are being extra constitutional. This is not what is designed in our charter. And therefore, we, the legislative branch, are empowered by the Constitution and Article 1, Section 8 to limit your scope and to limit your size. So we could come today in the Congress, presuming they were in session, but we could go today and we could redistrict the Ninth Congressional the, the Ninth Circuit Court out of existence in favor of uh, in favor of judges that are then going to be more constitutional originalists and then get our rule of law back in uh, back and forth. So I'm very concerned about Justice Gorchis and his latest opinion on how, what he's doing with regard to due process. Illegal aliens do not have due process in our country. There's strong precedent to prove that and to and that's been adjudicated. But again, when we look at Barbara Comstock, she funded executive amnesty. She's against extreme vetting. These are positions that I would never take. So I think the answer to your question is that the framers recognize that we could have a runaway judiciary. It's the smallest of our of our branches, and we have the ability in the Congress to control the executive branch at some level, but we also have the ability to control the judiciary branch. This is something we're not doing, but I would be a reinforcement to Dave Brat to look at that and to start working and eliminating these activist judges. Sure, sure. And just to clarify, there's there's two issues here, we and we and we can do both of them. One is geographical jurisdiction, uh, obviously reassigning the geographical jurisdiction of Ninth Circuit and other circuits. Dave Bratt's bill is on subject matter jurisdiction, where it would take mm-hmm. away their ability to issue nationwide injunctions outside of their mm-hmm. districts. So therefore, for example, if I guess this is what you're talking about, if you would have a district judge shopped around to just say, all right. Um, nationwide, we're going to have transgenderism in the military. We're going to have judicial amnesty. We're going to have, you know, abortions for illegal immigrants, uh, teenagers coming in. So the, they can now forum shop. This bill would say no. That would only apply in that individual case. So it would take away the ability to forum shop in order to apply it uh, nationwide. Um, you brought up immigration. Um, First off, it's it's actually interesting. You mentioned Barbara Comstock. I wrote about this a while ago. Um, I'll try to dig it up for show notes for for the audience. There's a Davis Oliver interior enforcement bill, which would punish sanctuary cities. It would speed up expedited deportations and expand them, um, deputize states to 
uh, enforce federal immigration law. It would also limit the role of the courts in immigration, which is much needed, not as much as I wanted to. But interestingly enough, leadership has refused to bring that bill to the floor, even though it's passed the Judiciary Committee in two successive Congresses. So one time, this happened. This happened last year. They severed off one portion of the bill dealing with deporting gang members, which, by the way, is going to be made harder by Gorsuch's opinion. And mm-hmm. in order to give brownie points to Barbara Comstock, who's not even a member of the Judicial Committee, <laughs> Judiciary, so they named it after it was heard the Comstock bill just to buttress her street cred on gangs, and. You know, and they passed it as a separate bill without the rest of the bill. And interestingly enough, even when they severed that part off, they watered down the provision in that part that that uh, limited the court's judi- jurisdiction of judicial review and gave the courts judicial review power over the de- designation of gang groups. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Something to look into. But on to immigration, what I'm seeing today is obviously we have a border surge, over 50,000 interdictions in March, and those are just interdictions. Who knows how many uh, they don't catch somewhere between a 30 and 50 percent rate, even by government measures, which is probably too high. Um, That's up to 2014 levels already where we had the crisis, the drug crisis, the gang crisis coming in. and there really isn't anyone speaking to this. The president broadly is on, on the right message, uh, but DHS is still doing catch and release despite the orders. The courts obviously are messing with things, and they listen to every woman of the lower courts. We have stolen sovereignty. What do you think one mm-hmm. member of Congress could do about this? Well, I don't think one member of Congress can do a lot about it, but what they can do is join, like, the House Freedom Caucus, for example, and stand on principle. I know that there's other members of Congress uh, that are being challenged. There's some open seats where we have strong constitutional conservatives coming in, and if we can get the House Freedom Caucus and we can get, the like, the, the, the Second Amendment Caucus, which is chaired by Thomas Massey, uh, another one that I would be joining, if we can get reinforcements to them, then we can absolutely start making a difference, even with just the critical mass. And you mentioned, you know, Barbara Comstock again. I mean, she is for uh, the DACA program. And and I've been telling everybody around here, look, you cannot be pro-DACA and anti-MS-13, even if they named a bill after you. So she is completely a swamp creature. She completely wants illegal immigration because that's what the National Chamber of Commerce wants. She wants to have this coming in. And yet on one side, she starts saying that she's, you know, against MS-13. And, and you know, all you have to do is look at the conservative review. I did that right before the show. I mean, she's a 30 percent on her rating of the conservative review scorecard, and there's only seven Republicans that are lower than she is. So she is a member of the top 25 or the bottom 25 if you pull out the United States Senate. There's even seven Democrats that are higher than she is. So she is a disaster. The people in the district know it. She's not telling us the truth. She has been lying to us with her votes, and they're very attuned. And I have to tell you, with pushing 1,100, 1,200 individual donors, we've got a strong support base here. And I'd love to have your your listeners go to shackhill.com to learn more about me. So shackhill.com is the website. 
Um, you know, as we run out of time, a couple more questions here. J- just in general, what other priorities do you have that are burning, raging inside of you that you feel nobody's giving voice to or it's not being heard enough that when you hit the ground running early January of 2019, you would immediately speak to these issues? What, what, what are some of those issues? Well, the federal government has jurisdiction over making sure that we have a common defense. We have to have a strong national security. We have to have a uh, a strong military. I've got my two oldest boys are in the United States Army right now. They're enlisted, and they represent the fourth generation of my family to wear the nation's uniform. We've got to get back to the principles of natural law. We've got to get back to the family structure. But I'll tell you, if we have an immigration problem, uh, if that continues, we're going to devalue what it means to be a citizen. And if that citizen cannot protect themselves with the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms, which shall not be infringed, we're going to lose our other rights because it's the, it, the Second Amendment is the right that keeps us all protected and free. You know, even the First Amendment's being attacked. Conservatives can't talk on, on campuses. They can't talk without fear and threat of having their, their endorsements pulled. Look at what's happening with other talk shows. So I'm going to hit the ground running. I'm going to hit the ground f- focusing on what the federal government's jurisdiction is. We're going to be we're going to make the Constitution strong again, and we're going to reestablish the private property rights. We're going to continue to break down the the um, the, the different things that are that are hurting us. Uh, the bureaucrats like the Sarbanes Oxley, the Cafe Standard, you know Dodd Frank. We're going to make it better for our entrepreneurs to use their God-given talents, and we're going to really bring back the freedom that our country has enjoyed. You know, when I graduated from the Air Force Academy, when I was a combat pilot, I flew all over the world, Daniel, and I saw what it was like to not be under a system where we have inalienable rights. So we absolutely have to bring those back. And, and I'll be one of those fighting for, for not only the 10th Congressional District in Virginia, but for everybody who believes the way we believe. So I think there's a good segue into some of foreign policy, military intervention policy wars. Um, you were in the Air Force for a number of years. As you said, you have two sons in the Army. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a member of Congress come 2019. Would you be able to look your sons in the eye and say, all righty, I'm sending you to Yemen, I'm sending you to Somalia, or I'm sending you to Afghanistan or Syria? I mentioned those five countries as a kind of, kind of, kind of a common thread. Do you think there is what for us to accomplish in any of those theaters militarily? And just if you could speak a little bit to what is going on in Syria, your views on not just the airstrikes, but the 4,000 troops we have in Syria, both from a prudential side in terms of what is the policy and also from a legal constitutional standpoint, are we able to continue all these open-ended interventions without congressional authorization? No, we're not able to continue them without congressional authorization. I mean, the last time the Congress declared war was World War II, and this is a constitutional power that we have to bring back to the Congress because it's only the Congress that has the right to to, to declare 
declare war. I cannot tell my, my children that it's in the best interest of the United States and in United States security to have all of these forces all over the uh, all over the globe. The military is designed to do two things, Daniel. It's to break things and kill people. It is not designed to be a police force. It's not designed to be a nation-building force. It's designed to protect the interests of the United States and the people of the United States. Now, I don't want to fight other, you know, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and others here in the United States. I'd rather fight them there. But it's within the purview and the legal purview that the Congress has to declare war. Um, you know, with regard to what's happened in Syria, we, we have a we have Assad, who is clearly uh, an evil person. We have uh, a gas attack, which I'm not quite sure came from Assad. Um, some people are telling me that it came from the Russians. And all of a sudden, we've got missiles being fired off. And I, I would, I would challenge, you know, the the Department of Defense, and and we would need to look at it in the Congress. But there's not really a strong legal basis for the president to have done this. So yes, we need to make sure that that democracy and the and, and the views of republics and others that want to use their inalienable rights are available to them. But it's not the purview of the United States to force it upon them. And we have to go back to declaring war in order to use the forces and in order to put our men and women, including my two sons, in harm's way. And folks, by the way, tomorrow, hopefully, I will be putting out another episode with my foreign policy correspondent here at CR. Jordan Shacktail to discuss some of what's going on in the Middle East and really drill down to some of the live fire events taking place that's being missed in the news. Um, you know, you you also mentioned before with regard to the military that Barbara Comstock voted to pay for uh, you know what what could only be called castration operations in the military. Based on your experience in the military, you're in the Air Force. Are you concerned about the social engineering and the social policy? I just saw today uh, a pastor is being punished, a chaplain for not um, trying for not officiating a gay marriage. Did you find this to be pervasive? And what do you think you can do as a member of Congress to change some of the culture that's permeated the military? Well, the, 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 this culture started, uh, we could argue that it started in Obama when Obama started to relax a lot of these rules, allowed members that were unfit for duty to come in. And now with the transgender, here's the thing, Daniel, that the people of the 10th Congressional District are waking up to and recognizing is that soldier that's going to go and get a transgender surgery will never be combat ready, ever. So if that's particular individual who you know wants to have a surgery, let them have their own surgery. Let them pay for it. Let them do whatever they feel is they need to do uh, to their body. But they cannot do it through the social engineering of the military and taxpayer dollars. And and you know this this pastor, this chaplain that is using his faith to prevent 
doing something that he wants to do, we need to strengthen the ability for these pastors to stay within their religious freedoms, because one of the things that our country was founded on was religious freedom and the ability to have a conscience and do what your religion tells you. So what we have to do, starting in the Congress, but I think really a lot of the states have to do it, and certainly the people, your listeners, we have to start sending a message by putting people like me in the Congress, Dave, Brad, and others, that we cannot socially engineer our military because that's not what they're designed to do. They were never supposed to be using taxpayer dollars. And it was the Family Research Center that said it was about $3.8 billion. I mean, my son needs Kevlar vests. They need armored personnel carriers. And socially engineering the military is a disaster. And the people of the 10th Congressional District know this about Barbara. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to win. You know, moving back to domestic policy, the biggest issue on the minds of, of most people, and rightfully so, is health care. Um, you know, health care is really a force multiplying issue, both from a fiscal standpoint, from an economic standpoint, in terms of individual liberty, prosperity. It's the single biggest cause of national debt and personal debt, um, the skyrocketing cost of market distortions in health care and health and medical insurance. Um, there is no narrative from the Republican Party after they aborted the attempt to repeal Obamacare. What is it you will push on health care, not just in terms of repealing Obamacare? I know you're for that. And I know you're going to be aggressive on that. But in terms of instilling market forces in an industry where it really doesn't exist. No, it doesn't exist because we have politicians like Barbara who promise that they're going to repeal Obamacare, and when it comes time for the vote, she votes not to repeal Obamacare, exactly what Nancy Pelosi did. But, you know, the federal government, what we have to do, Daniel, is we have to look at what the role of the federal government is, and it does not include the delivery of medicine. And when the federal government gets involved in anything, it's never a silent partner, it wants to take over, and it can not solve our individual problems, like I mentioned earlier as to why, you know, I was a foster parent to 46 children with my, my wife and I. So the answer does lie in the open markets, the free markets. And I'll give you just two quick examples. If you look at LASIK surgery, volunteer LASIK surgery to correct an, an impurity in your eye, that used to cost $2,000 or more per eye. But because it is because of market forces, what you've seen is the price of LASIK surgery has come down dramatically, and the quality has increased dramatically because of what we have with the free market. And if you look at um, if you look at voluntary plastic surgeries as well, the plastic surgeon industry is booming. Again, the cost has come way down, and the quality has come way up. So if you give mom and dad the opportunity to use the market forces to determine where they want to get that x-ray, where they want to have that MRI, which surgeon has a better track record than another, and not be dependent on the fact that you live in a particular zip code or you live inside of the Beltway, so you've got one insurance plan, or you live outside the Beltway, you've got a different one. I mean, I've heard of families that have actually moved to different locations so they can have a different plan. But the best and the, the best and swiftest way to get the federal government out of our health care delivery is to repeal Obamacare. I mean, my wife and I 
lost our plan. We lost our doctor. We had to go find a new plan, a new doctor, and she has a pre-existing condition. It's cancer. Mm-hmm. And it still impacted us. And, and so, so the absolute best way to cure our medical delivery and many of the other ailments that we have in our country is to deregulate, get the government out of the way, and let the market forces work. When that happens, we will make America great again. Yep. I mean, government and the insurance cartel, which is really one of the same, it's a, it's a symbiotic mm-hmm. relationship. They don't care about the cost nearly as much as patients do. Um, cut out the middleman, baby. That's, that's certainly it. Um, real quick, just thought of it as we're talking, uh, and, and we could you know, obviously go on with many other issues, but we're running out of time. Um, one thing that will for sure come up, very likely within a month or two, and if not, then certainly next year when you would be in Congress if you were elected, is the internet sales tax. Um, no matter what happens at the Supreme Court, um, they plan on moving a bill that will allow, for example, a state like South Dakota, I just picked them because they are the plaintiff in the Supreme Court case, a state like South Dakota to say, all righty, if you're a business in South Dakota and someone in Virginia goes online and purchases something on, on that online business, they would that Virginia would collect sales taxes on behalf of South Dakota. Do you think this is a good idea? It's a total disaster. I mean, again, if you want to start choking the the entrepreneurism of small business owners, of which I am, if you want to put more and more regulations through the tax code on these businesses, this is one of the ways to stifle our, our economy and our American ingenuity. I mean, I think I heard, and you probably know the number, Daniel, better than me, but I think I heard there's over 5,000 taxing jurisdictions inside 10, of the United States. <laughs> 10,000. 10, 10, Literally, yeah. whether a kick in some places, a Kit Kat will not be subject to a sales tax, but a Milky Way will because it has wheat in it. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that, it's that's how different it I is. Mean, yeah, and how how do we manage that? And the answer is, is we don't. Uh, we, we can't manage it. It's going to be fraught with fraud. There's going to be other people that are going to figure out ways to evade the taxes. It's going to hurt the individual person who wants to have a good quality product at a good quality price. And this is just another way of the federal government you know, with its insatiable appetite to spend, to come in and try to find new new forms of revenue. I tell you, what we have to do is we have to balance our budget. We have to put our nation's priorities. We I have a master's degree in in finance, so there is a way to fund our our nation's priorities without passing it on to our children and our grandchildren. What the politicians are doing today is they're buying votes with our grandchildren's money. And it's absolutely disastrous. But another thing we have to do, and I heard you mention Planned Parenthood earlier today. I mean, Planned Parenthood has continued to be funded at $500 million or so a year. And there's only one reason, one reason why Planned Parenthood has continued to be funded in the Congress today. And that's because the current Republicans want to fund Planned Parenthood. And this is where Barbara Comstock is. She wants to continue to fund Planned Parenthood. And it's unconscionable to me. So why are we taxing internet sales when we're continuing on one side to continue to fund Planned Parenthood that absolutely 
unequivocally kills human beings. It's unconscionable to me. So I have a master's degree in finance. I know how to do this. I know how to balance the budget. But more importantly, I know how to fight. And one of the things that I'll be fighting is an internet sales tax. So, so just uh, you're pretty clear on that. But just to, to take it to the end uh, here, almost every Democrat supports it. 60, 70 percent of Republicans and the president emphatically supports it. I take it you are a no. I am a no. Well, th- there you have it. Um, next issue, and this is something that is very important that I've asked all of the candidates on my show. And I'll continue to ask it. You know, people of all ideological stripes that get in this business, there's something about this business that just attracts a certain crowd. Um, and nobody can control themselves anymore. And left and right, we're finding out one after another. You find this guy committed adultery. This guy had a financial tax scam. Could you commit to our audience that if they go to shackhill.com and support you, support your candidacy, there's nothing in your background that the establishment or anyone else will drudge up that could embarrass them, whether it's an infidelity or a financial scam, a tax scam, or something like that? I will absolutely ensure your audience that there's nothing like that out there. Perfect. Well, you know, I've been married to I've been married to my wife for 29 years. She's got over three feet of scarring across her body. You know, she is the life of my life, and she is my hero. Uh, there's nothing I'm going to do uh, to violate that. You know, a lot of men read books every day, but when she was pregnant with our child, Daniel, the doctors looked at her and said, "You've got cancer. We have to terminate the pregnancy immediately." And you know what she did? She looked over at me and she said this. She said, Shaq, will you raise the children? The idea of aborting our child, the idea of aborting a human, the idea of participating in the culture of death never crossed our mind. And I said, yes, I'll I'll support you and I'll support this decision and I'm going to support the culture of life. And we thought, literally, that Robin was going to be alive long enough to give birth to our son and that she would then quickly die right after that. And so what happens is is when you live with principle and you act on principle and you make your decisions on principle, you cannot go into the swamp and flip on principle. This is why I support Jim Jordan and the House Freedom Caucus. There is nothing in my background which will embarrass me, my family, or those that want to support me. Well, there you have it, folks. That is Shaq Hill running for Congress against Representative Barbara Comstock in the GOP primary in Virginia's 10th district. That is in northern Virginia, northwest Virginia for the most part. Um, Go to ShaqHill.com if you would like to find out more about the candidate. Alrighty, Shaq. Well, good luck with everything. God bless, and thanks for coming on. Well, thank you very much for ha- for having me. Uh, it's Shaq is S H A K H I L L Shaquille dot com. Mark, keep, I mean Daniel, keep up the good work. Keep working with Mark as well, and God bless you and your efforts. Perfect. Well, thanks so much again, and good luck. Well, there you have it, folks. That was our seventh in the series of Meet the Candidates. And like I said at the beginning of the show, I mean, we have a judicial crisis beyond imagination. By the way, as we're talking, I just got an email. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals just struck down (laughs) Trump's DOJ's effort to cut off funding to sanctuary cities. This is yet another – a lot of district judges have done that. This is another appeals court. This is appellate court level. So, for those of you who are saying, oh, just 
just appoint better judges. Trump appointed three judges to the Sixth Circuit. He's appointed made appointments to the Seventh Circuit, and those aren't even the worst. You know, like the Second, Third, Fourth, and Ninth in D.C. Uh, and still, we can't get. The most basic things past that. By the way, just look at the juxtaposition between the two cases. A state does not have the power, according to the courts, to use its own funding, its own taxpayer funding from state revenue in accordance with its beliefs to not fund abortions. Yet, somehow a state could demand from the federal government law enforcement grants while it violates law enforcement statutes in terms of immigration law. That is the judicial crisis we have. We're going to get that more next week. Next episode will be with Jordan Schachtel. We're going to do a deep dive into our foreign policy strategic interests in the Middle East. What is an interest? What is not? I respect all your feedback. I've gotten so many emails since the, the Levin TV appearance and last night's radio appearance. dhorowitz at crtv.com is the email at rmconservative on Twitter. Look for our new advertisers next week, by the way. We're very excited to announce them. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.